Grant. And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. That's right. So let's share our veiled interests. Like a wedding veil? Yeah. And, oh. And this is one of our interests. Oh. It's not veiled. It's not hidden away. It's pretty obvious this is our interest. It's definitely funnier the more you explain it. <laughs> Here's something the folks uh, listening may not know. Uh-huh. Your birthday's coming up. Uh-huh. So I thought I'd do something nice for you. Uh-huh. thought I'd get you a present. Uh-huh. Is it a puppy? Uh, no. Why not? Because we cannot have puppies in audio format. Like, But, I mean, yeah, we could. It could be a puppy right here, and it could be all like, yip, 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 and it would be like, that's our puppy. Why, why not? Why is that not my birthday present? Because it's just not. <laughs> I don't need to answer why. It just isn't. It's like the perfect... I'm giving you perfect material right here, though, for my birthday. So Yeah, but not for a segue, which is what I'm really angling for. So if my birthday comes around and you're like, well, I didn't know what you'd get you, let the record show puppy named Jughead with a hat and a burger collar. What? I just thought you'd enjoy Mm -hmm. talking about the biggest mass murder in Michigan history. I love those. See? I know what I'm doing. So we're going to talk about the Copper Country Strike of 1913 to 1914. Did it involve syrup? No, it involved copper mostly. Uh, Well, we've been on like a syrup murder kick. That's a different show, dude. Okay. We're going to save that for the end. Okay. So tell me about copper murder. Okay. Sure. Sure. Michigan's Copper Country is named for a region in the northwest part of the Upper Peninsula. It includes the Keweenaw Peninsula and the whole area around there. Mm-hmm. Which, like, if you're looking at a map, it's the, the peninsula that comes off the north side of the Upper Peninsula. That's Keweenaw right there. So, if you're doing it with your hands, it's, like, the back of my hand. It's your right uh, my pinky. Right, my yeah. right pinky. Okay, cool. Cool. Michigan people like to use their hands for maps. It's it's a thing. Is it? For me, it is. I know where everything is in the state of Michigan if I look at my hands. There's a lot of distortion in that projection. That's uh, all I'm I, saying. I have a much better idea of what part of the state we're talking about now that I've looked at my hands. You know what would help with that? A real map. I've always said it would be cool to like get it tattooed. Like if someone just like tattooed Michigan on their hands that and would, like state like major highways, that would be awful. I mean, I wouldn't do it, but I want to see someone who did that. So, anyways, go ahead. So yeah, it's named for its rich copper deposits, uh-huh. uh, which after the 1840s, 1850s became the major industry of the time. Uh, the, the biggest mining company in the region for the period we're going to be talking about was the Calumet and Hecla Mining Company. Hecla. Yeah, it was. Hecla Cray. The system worked like this. Groups of miners, usually family groups, would have their own contracts with the company to determine their pay and their quotas. And miners would work over 10 hours a day, six days a week, uh, drilling. For, for a long time, drills took three people to operate, but they, uh, a while before, instituted the two-man drill. Mm-hmm. And then there was another crew called the Trammers, the unskilled laborers who pushed the loaded ore carts around. Mm-hmm. And Trammers didn't have any sort of contract system at all. They just showed up and pushed stuff. They were second-class labor at best. Okay. Now, the company owned 
everything. Uh, so you, you would drive into town on company-built roads. You'd live in a company-assigned house. Your family would go to – your children would go to company-operated schools. And if you got sick, you were sent to a company-operated hospital. It was a, a pretty much complete and total control of every aspect of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, company policy preferred certain ethnicities over others. Of course. Swedes, Germans, and East Europeans uh, were preferred to, say, South Italians and other Mediterranean folk. Any European immigrant was preferred to someone from an American city. Because they work for less, I yeah, assume. The, well, you don't want, you know, the, the riffraff of those street folks. Mm. Calumet and Hecla especially didn't like the Finns, saying they were too radicalized. So <laughs> oh. the, the company secretly funded a right-wing newspaper printed in Finnish to, to provide a pro-capitalist voice to that community. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Why did they prefer, like, Swedes and Germans and East Europeans to... South Italians and Mediterranean. Because they were very racist. I figured that, but I'm just wondering, like, what their racist reasoning was? Their preferred nationalities were, uh, they they came from countries that were less socialist, less anarchist. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, a little little bit more there. Some good Protestant work ethic. Mm, Of course. That, that's how things continued for, for decades on. But then things started to break down. Miners started to have some real issues. Uh, for one, copper miners out west had successfully unionized for better wages and safer conditions. Mm-hmm. After Michigan's mines were founded, you know, people started finding deposits in Utah and uh, Colorado. And those mines, uh, after being organized, the, the miners were treated a lot better. Uh, Michigan's miners wanted an eight-hour workday and better wages, too. Some were sending their children into the mine to supplement the family income. Mm. So they they wanted to demonstrate for uh, a, a living wage and an end to uh, child labor to attack it from both, like, supply and demand sides. Okay. Of course, the company having sole monolithic authority in in these communities didn't go over too well. Uh, But one of the biggest flashpoints was the introduction of the one-man drill. The one-man drill is obviously more efficient, uh, and the company believed it would increase production. If we buy all these drills, we can fire half the miners and do the same amount of drilling. It's perfect. Profits are going to explode. Mm-hmm. Or if we, we could have the same amount of people do twice as much digging. It's um, it's incredible. Yeah. Money's going to roll in. From the miner's perspective, you needed to work in pairs and groups for safety. If something went wrong, you got a buddy. With a one-man drill, if something goes wrong, you're trapped in rubble before anyone knows you're missing for hours and hours. Yeah. That sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that would suck. Once the strike begins, uh, another one of their demands was things like uh, requiring cross beams in the shafts. Like, these were not safe conditions. No, doesn't sound like it. So uh, the Western Federation of Miners, that, that union that started out in these other mines, saw an opportunity to expand their membership and started recruiting in Michigan in 1912. 
In July 1913, local chapters voted to strike without the support of the national leadership. The WFM had just come off of some very costly strikes, and they didn't really have the funds to support it. But it started anyway. (laughs) So on the first day of the strike, the 15,000 picketers shut down basically every mine across Copper Country. So whether they like it or not, the strike started, so the WFM be- immediately began raising money to send to support the striking workers. Uh, strikers held almost daily parades and demonstrations. The mines immediately fired all union members, which gave them time to do all these other things. James McNaughton was president and general manager of the Calumet and Hecla Mining Company. He immediately asked the governor to send in support. Uh, Governor Ferris responded by sending Michigan's entire National Guard. Oh, that's a great idea. A little over 2,000, maybe 2,500 people, but the entire National Guard, no matter what the number is, it's 100%. McNaughton, he's going to come up a bit, so let's talk about him. Uh, He was also known as the King of Houghton County. Okay. uh, The Czar of Copper Country. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Or just Big Jim. Was Big Jim in... A mob, or like mobster, gangster. He didn't need to be. He <laughs> had enough money. That seems like James Big Jim. If killing people for money counts as being a mobster, then yes, yes, he was. But everything he did was legal. Oh. Yeah. So uh, here is a quote uh, uh, from Michigan National Guard General Pearly L. Abbey to Governor Ferris about just the events of one ordinary day. Lawlessness broke loose through the district today. Northwestern train windows smashed with rocks. 30 men broke into workmen's home at Quincy. Row with deputies at Quincy. Paraders at Calumet armed with clubs. Three fights. Two deputies badly cut up. 13 strikers arrested. Four arrests near Amique for shooting up workmen's premises. Picketing throughout entire district. Uh Uh-huh. So, like, yeah, this is a widespread strike. We're we're talking about hundreds of miles and very angry people. Yes. It was it was chaotic, it was violent. So here here's basically the issue at hand. The mines refused to recognize the union, negotiate with them, or hire any union members. Okay. You could get your job back if management watched you tear up your union membership card. They uh, shipped in workers from out of state and outside the U.S. to do the work instead. Uh, just train loads of scab workers coming in. Some of them uh, were likely forced to work against their will. Oh. Yeah. Like push-ganged into copper mining. Basically. Yeah. Speaking with uh, his supporters later in the strike, McNaughton said, if we want to be insured against a repetition of this thing within the next 15 or 20 years, we've got to rub it into them now that we have them down. McNaughton was relentless throughout the whole thing. The Western Federation of Miners funding ran out. Like I said, they didn't have that much to, to start with. And many strikers did go back to the mines or just left for other jobs. They left for uh, mines out west, factories in Chicago. Mm-hmm. They, they needed to eat. Uh, when the strike began, WFM had about $25,000 in cash. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, the Calumet and Hecla Mining Company had about a million dollars on hand, not to mention the 16 million pounds of copper just waiting to be sold. If That's it, a big difference of money. If it was a waiting game, it's clear who the odds favor. Yeah. So then we enter the late summer of 1913. 
Uh, after a few weeks, the guard began shipping out, uh, cutting to, to half their number and eventually even less than that. Uh, the companies instead hired private security from the Waddle Mahan uh, Detective Corporation and deputized over 600 locals to fill the gap. Just about anybody who uh, worked for mine management or was loyal to them was likely to be a sheriff's deputy by, by the time everything was over. You're a deputy. You're a deputy. You're a deputy, too. With all the rights of, you know, waving guns at people that uh, yeah. that position carries. So they, they planned to reopen certain mines on August 14th with all this labor they were shipping in. That day, two strikers, John Kalen and John Stimmick, crossed over company land on their way home to a boarding house in Seberville. Mm -hmm. They met a trammer, Humphrey Quick, who was patrolling the path and enforcing the new policy that strikers could not walk there, a policy that I think was instituted earlier that day. They just didn't know Oh, that the, this shortcut was off limits. Yeah. Now, Quick spoke English. Kalen and Stimmick uh, spoke very little English between them. Mm -hmm. uh, the strikers walked off toward home, and Quick reported them to his superiors. Because, you know, that's his job. Uh, William Satchett was his boss at the mine and asked him to retrieve the men to properly explain the new trespassing rules. On the way, he, he met up with Thomas Raleigh, who was a, a violent strike breaker who came along to help with the explaining. He, he was one of the uh, Waddle Mahan men. Uh, on the way, a, a group of about six or so built up between Model Mahan folks and some other deputized locals. So the group arrived at the boarding house in Seberville, posing as police, and uh, Raleigh yelled for Kalen, who refused to go with them. So the mob began beating anyone they could reach, uh, including Kalen, with their clubs and fists. Kalen and the other boarders uh, escaped to go inside the boarding house, and the mob stood uh, with their guns drawn surrounding the house just off the yard. Okay. Uh, someone threw a stick and hit one of the mob in the head, who fired a wild shot and fatally hit the landlord's brother. Now, bullets start flying everywhere. It was a chaotic scene with, with shot bodies filling the doorways, people trying to clamber up staircases to get into the beds. People are trying to escape. There, there was a, a young woman who was employed at the, the boarding house who ran out with her baby and the baby got powder burns on its face as she ran by one of the men shooting. Goodness. Two men, unrelated to the initial incident, died, and two others were shot non-fatally at the end of the day. Uh, after the shooting stopped, the shooters who stayed around filled the yard with rocks and, and dumped their spent shells inside the house and in the yard to make it look like it had been a two-sided battle. Though I assume, like, no one in the house probably had much to shoot at them. No. <laughs> Not at all, no. Uh, 5,000 people participated in the funeral procession, a massive show of solidarity as the strike was beginning to falter. I mean, once the mines opened up, what what do the strikers even have mm -hmm. in, in their hand to play? Yeah. Uh, three Waddle Mahan men and a deputy sh and a deputy sheriff were found guilty of manslaughter. Raleigh disappeared that night and was never put to trial. Of course, of course he was. So with that we're going to take a quick break and we're going to get back with some more. Okay. <laughs>
just really want to watch October Skies now. It's not dissimilar, you know? I really love October Skies. <laughs> Why don't we own that? We should own that. If you need another birthday present idea for me, you can yeah. get me October Skies. That'll be the name of the second puppy. Uh, so summer drags on, moves into fall. Let's, let's pick up in October. Okay. Uh, by October, the reopened mines were growing in production. There were only a few hundred National Guard left. Uh, but by now, there were over 1,200 sheriff's deputies and about 400 CNH folks. Oh, this ain't good. Now, let me just peel back the curtain a, a little bit of the sleight of hand. That uh, quote from the National Guard general, that was from a telegram he wrote in October. So, so now things are matched up. Okay. But it's also when the Citizens' Alliance was founded. Mm -hmm. Now, the Citizens' Alliance posed as a grassroots organization of concerned folks, people who just wanted uh, peace to return and to get rid of all these outside agitators making life terrible for, for these poor mine folks. Uh, it was actually an arm of the mine companies. They were the, the militant wing of the Chamber of Commerce, basically. Uh, they distributed their own newspaper for free. Mm -hmm. uh, to, to share these views. Of course, free means paid for by the companies yeah. and full of anti-union rhetoric. Of course. On December 10th, the Citizens' Alliance had a huge rally to condemn the WFM's poisonous slime and its reign of terror. They were not a very subtle group. No, <laughs> they just put it out there and like, yeah. there you go. The mining companies let their workers have the day off and paid for special trains to take them there. This was... Just a big old smash the union holiday. Uh-huh. Now, later in December, things are, are dragging on. The the strike is limping along with what loans the union can get from other unions. Mm -hmm. uh, people getting their 3 to $7 a week in union benefits. Yeah. So we come to Christmas Eve, 1913. Here's the part that, that you should be most excited for, dear. Uh-huh. Yeah. I know what's coming. The Italian Hall disaster. Yeah. Yeah. Anything with disaster in the name. I swear, I'm not a terrible person. Mm-hmm. I'm not horrible. I don't, like, wish death on everyone. But if it comes, you're not going to turn a gift massacre in the mouth. I don't want more bad things to happen to people now, so we have, like, disasters to talk about later. Like, I don't want that. You just really appreciate the ones we already have. Maybe. I'm terrible. So the unions, the Women's Auxiliary, held a Christmas party in Italian Hall in Calumet. Calumet's basically the, the biggest city in the region. Mm -hmm. uh, up on the second floor where they had their big hall. Hundreds of people were there, uh, mostly union members' children. It was organized by Big Annie Clemenc, founder of the Women's Auxiliary and master of ceremonies for the party. She was a, a big personality, six foot three. She was big in every respect. Mm -hmm. Everybody loved Big Annie. Uh, Santa Claus was there to give gifts to the children. Uh, for many of those kids, it was going to be the only gift they get that year. Yeah. Uh, in the afternoon, as things were just beginning to wind down. There were at least 400 children still there, and about 175, maybe nearly 200 adults upstairs when an unidentified man opened the door and yelled, fire. Oh, great. There was no fire. There was no danger at all. But as people rushed down the narrow staircase toward the, the narrow doors. This sounds familiar. It, it sure does. Uh, they, they crowded and tripped over one another. 
uh, over 60 children and about a dozen adults were crushed to death in the, the massive pile to get out of these doors. Uh, came to be known as the Devil's Door. Hmm. Firemen couldn't get in through the front door, so they used ladders to enter the upstairs window, walk through the hall to the crowded pile of bodies, pick up whoever was on top, dead or alive, walk back through the hall, and then go out the window again, over and over as the survivors watched. Goodness. It was terrible. I'm just, I'm just having flashbacks to a certain episode when we first started this. Which one? I was thinking of, like, the Iroquois fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The immediate inquest had no interpreters for witnesses. They, they were only able to speak to English speakers. They didn't ask follow-up questions, and they included testimony from people who weren't even there. What? It makes you wonder who the coroner was protecting. Yeah. Uh, there was a later investigation ordered by the U.S. House of Representatives uh, that did have things like interpreters. 40% of these sworn witnesses said the man was wearing a Citizens Alliance button. That's an important piece of evidence. Mm -hmm. Now, the Citizens Alliance had a charitable fund that raised $25,000 for the grieving families who refused to accept it. Good. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, good. <laughs> the the uh, WFM's leader, a man named Moyer, uh, came out and said that they, they would not be accepting charity from people who just the day before had been decrying them as, as you know, poisonous people, citizens uh, not deserving of rights. Yeah. Let, let's talk about Mr. Moyer. On the 26th of December, 1913... Uh, after two days of of spitting fire and and you know speaking out against the, this mass murder, essentially, uh, he, he had been sending out telegrams demanding an independent investigation to the U.S. Congress, to anyone who would listen, the state of Michigan, mm -hmm. wh whoever might uh, be able to to come in and figure out who did what and and what we're going to do about it. Mm -hmm. That night, in, in the evening, the sheriff and some deputies knocked on his hotel room door and told him to call off these requests and, and cool down his uh, uh, rhetoric and publicly exonerate the Citizens Alliance from any wrongdoing. Uh-huh. Now, in his uh, telegrams, he didn't even say, you need to investigate what the Citizens Alliance did, just like, it was just a call for an investigation. Yeah, like, we need to look into this. Don't he, know who did it. He certainly had his uh, suspicions. Yeah. Come on now. I mean, it's kind <laughs> of obvious. But Moyer refused. And then the sheriff says, well, I can't protect you anymore. Closes the door, walks away. A few moments later, another knock comes. A group of men wearing Citizens Alliance buttons uh, break into his hotel room beat him one beats him with the the butt of a pistol which fires and hits him in the back uh-huh he's dumped on a train just left in a boxcar headed for chicago and i'm sure the sheriff knew nothing about this <laughs> he said he couldn't protect him he also didn't really have that thorough of an investigation investigators never conclusively identified the individuals and the crime went unsolved and unpunished so the sheriff was just like, okay, go ahead. I'm done. 
It's all yours. Hey, he walked pro- right past them. He probably went down a different hallway. No, I'm, he I'm didn't. Sure. The sheriff, no. He, like, walked past them, gave him, like, a thumbs up, like, go get him. <laughs> so, eventually, uh, as the strike limped along, and, and Moyer did recover, he survived. He uh, showed off his bullet wound in a, um, in a press conference. I'm glad he survived. By April 1914, there were no loans left to take out, there was no money left to give, and the, the mines had been operating at some manner of capacity for months now. Union members voted overwhelmingly to end the strike. The mines reopened fully on Easter Sunday. About half the striking miners were, were able to come back. There's a ledger of 8,000 names of miners who renounced all union ties to go back to work. They, they were also charged a, a fee of five cents for the privilege of coming back. Now, this ledger was presented as a gift to McNaughton. All those nickels were pulled together to buy him a a gold pocket watch engraved with thanks for preventing the WFM from taking over. How full of himself is this dude? Like, what the f***? He is the czar of copper country. My god, this might be the worst man I've ever heard of. This strike went from summer to spring. It was many, many months. Uh-huh. Right? There are other episodes of violence and shootings and things that we're not even talking about in the episode today. One of these episodes is um, McNaughton being called in front of a congressional committee and they're pleading with them, just sit down. You don't even have to accept their proposal, just negotiate. And so he takes out his pocketbook and says, this is my pocketbook, and I will not arbitrate about whose pocketbook it is. That would be foolish. (gasps) This man. The whole goal isn't just to, you know, preserve the the one-man drill or to not raise wages. It's to delegitimize the very concept of organized labor. Mm -hmm. That's the goal. When the strike ended and they reopened, the mines did offer a pay raise. They did institute the eight-hour workday. Uh, but the right to organize was absolutely rejected, and the one-man drill was made standard. So, like, they got some things, mm-hmm. but they were still pretty screwed. Yes. Very, very screwed. Uh, sort of the, the uh, monolithic control of the mine companies also ended, mostly because they stopped offering These other services, so other companies came in, like, you didn't have a mine-operated hospital anymore. Somebody had to open an independent hospital. Uh Independent schools. The public school movement, thankfully, helped. (laughs) Yeah. What came after that? How did it all shake out in the end? How did it shake out? Are you going to tell me? I hope you're going to tell me. I think I will. I hope there will be some good things. Again, this is 1913, 1914. What else is happening in Michigan industry? The auto industry is taking off. Yep. Uh, Henry Ford is building larger and larger plants, and so are all his competitors. So so a lot of labor migrated south to Detroit and Flint, etc. Flint Flint was, for those who don't know, a major auto industry as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, they look over that. They don't know. Uh, Flint was home to GM. Yeah. The Shortly after the strike, the federal government did make policy to arbitrate strikes and force negotiations to occur. They couldn't force them to be successful, but they would get people to sit down at a table. Okay. After the strike. Afterwards. Next time. For the next time. Next time. We'll do this. But it was shortly before uh, things like some of America's child labor laws came out. In 1916, 
uh, there was the first eight-hour day national law, though it applied only to uh, railroads. The history of labor is that positive change comes as much from the failures as the successes. Yeah. Italian Hall itself was demolished in 1984. Oh, that's a really long time. The I guess there wasn't a fire, so they didn't need to like do anything to it before that. There, there are rumors that it was becoming unsafe, that the facade was cracking. Were there haunted stories, ghosts? Ooh. I don't usually think to check for ghosts, so let's say probably because that's just the way people are. I thought this was like my my birthday episode for me. Darling, like you darling, should know what? what I'm really bad at your birthday. You should like know. You gotta look up the ghosts, the spookums. Now, the archway over the front door, that devil's door, still remains as part of a monument to the event. A few years ago, there was, of course, all, all sorts of events for the centennial anniversary. Mm -hmm. We just passed the 103rd. This Christmas will be the 104th. Man, you missed actually a lot of opportunity for ghosts, because I'm sure there's a lot of like ghost stories about like the mines and stuff, too. Oh, yeah, people dying down there, yeah. and their bodies never discovered. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Darling, so much material. <laughs> Copper Country was successfully unionized between 1939 and 1943. Uh, however, the uh, industry is not really a major player in the region anymore. Uh, declining deposits and falling copper prices closed the mines in the end. It was just too expensive to go down and, and dig out what was left behind compared to other mines in other parts of the world. Calumet and Hecla closed its mines in 1969. Didn't it become kind of like ghost towny in some areas up yeah, there where like yeah. the mine towns? I mean, there's still like people living up there and everything, but there's like mining towns that could be classified as like ghost towns for quite a while. I mean, there there's of course all sorts of tourist stuff for yeah. the the mining equivalent of rail fans. Yes, there's all your natural wonder and outdoorsmanism. Yes. Yes. That, that the UP is full of, but without a, a major industry like this, the, the, the whole region basically collapsed. Yeah. Uh, there, there are some other things to commemorate the, the events. Uh, famously, one of Woody Guthrie's biggest hits of the early 40s was about the Italian Hall uh, disaster. It's called, like, The Massacre of 1913 or something Ooh, like that. I would probably like to listen to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a fantastic PBS documentary called Red Metal. Oh, yeah. Did yeah. we watch part of that? We watched all of that. That that came out a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. There's also a, a board game called Copper Country where you play as the mine companies and you have to deal with... Strikers? <laughs> People trying to unionize? That That's one of the events, but also just the, the facts of mining. The more you take out, the more waste there is in dealing with that. Oh. And, you it'd know, be the, really the advance of time, the advance of technology, and yes, historical events like the strike are included. It would be really, really messed up if it was a game that was just about, like, suppressing your worker. Not exclusively. Like, but if that it's was in all there. it was. Someone should get on that, though. I bet people would play it. You messed up, but people would play it. So, darling, mm -hmm. what have you learned? I've learned you need to look more into ghost stories. Yeah, you've learned I'm really bad at birthday <laughs> presents. Again, you learn this every year. No. We're going to see Hedwig on your birthday. 
Yeah, but you said that's not my birthday present. Oh, f- why did I say that? <laughs> you did. You said that like last month. You're like, well, I bought those tickets forever ago, so that's not like your actual present because that was just too long ago. And I was like, it could be my present. You're like, no, no, it can't be your present. Well, I know something else I'm doing while you're out of the house tomorrow. <laughs> Getting a puppy? But what else have you learned today? <laughs> okay, um, the Tsar of Copper Country was a bull. There's a reason all the mine companies, Calumet and Hecla might have been the biggest, but they, they didn't own a majority of the business. There's a reason everyone looked to McNaughton. Yeah. He's the guy. There's a trophy for a collegiate hockey league named the McNaughton Trophy because he was really big into amateur hockey. Everybody's got a human side. Okay, they need to rename that. <laughs> I would be they happy really, if they did. really, really need to rename that thing because that dude does not deserve anything named after him when he's like, yeah, just go murder people. I support this. Part of what comes out of this is, as you talked about, like even when things like fail... Mm-hmm. Good things can come out of it, though not everything you want, but it's all fighting for things that you want that are better, that make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. Nothing is too small and nothing's a waste. Yeah. Everything you do for that can lead to something, and every little bait you gain leads to something else. Yeah, if, if you're in a struggle for immediate results... For victories, you're going to burn out and you're not going to see them. Yes. But if you're in it for, like, the struggle itself. Yeah. And if you're in it for the the long arc of history. Yes. You you might be able to find something. This is very relevant to today. (laughs) Is that another reason you wanted to do it? No, I just really like this story. Yeah. And it's been a while since I did a labor story. Well, the, the last one was Haymarket. It's very relevant. Did you learn anything in your research that you didn't know? There's an archive operated by the National Park Service in Calumet mm-hmm. where you can actually look at that 8,000 name ledger with the inscription thanking uh, McNaughton for his, his tireless work. I don't know if it's open to the public, but like it's there. They yeah. have it. That's, that's Which is pretty, cool. That is pretty cool. I'm a little curious how the Park Service got it from, like, the McNaughton family. Ooh, yeah, that's that would be interesting to know. There's just some sort of estate sale? Is there a, a child or grandchild who's really into historical preservation? I, I like, don't know. We know he was a dick. Here, <laughs> have this. Let the world know. And the world will see. What we had to sign. <laughs> That's a whole different strike we'll talk about sometime. Yeah, so while we're looking to the future, let's take another quick break mm-hmm. and we'll come back with letters and other fun stuff. Okay. Okay. Welcome back, everybody. We got some letters from y'all. Mailbag. Steven sent us an email. Uh, Steven goes back to a past prompt about a favorite historical couple, mm-hmm. and that would be Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, the, that's the, a good one. The famous couple who, you know, robbed and murdered and then died. They're a good one. Also, for a more recent historical couple, they also bring up Macho Man Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth. Oh, yeah! I guess if you don't know, they, they were wrestlers. They were wrestlers. wrestlers. Yeah. I mean, like, I was trying to think of, like, WWE. 
E. Well, right? that no? didn't exist w- yet, at least by that, not by that name. Okay, so they were wrestlers. They were very famous, and he did uh, some storylines with Hulk Hogan, who a lot of people know. Mm-hmm. And then they separated in 1992, and Aww. Steven was very upset about that. I don't know. Maybe you're just kind of upset. Not a lot of upset. upset. I'm adding things in here. <laughs> And rambling a lot. So thank you, Stephen, for your email. I'm going to let you go on to the next one. Wrestling entertainment deaths are especially tragic because of of their precarious position as uh, uh, independent contractors doing very dangerous work. There is that. It's why they're so likely to become addicted to painkillers or uh, have brain hemorrhage or all sorts of nasty business. You know what they could do? They could unionize. Unionize? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. The prompt for this episode's emails was favorite labor union. Uh, James writes in once again to share what I think is probably a common sentiment. His is his local teachers union, the, the Wisconsin Teachers Union. The Wisconsin Teachers Union had massive protests at the Capitol uh, and other protests and solidarity all around the state against an effort to remove collective bargaining rights in the state of Wisconsin. And this was recently. This was very recent. Very, very recently. Just days into Scott Walker's term as governor. The bill in question failed because it was part of, of a much larger bill that had other things going on for it. However, the the effort did pass on its own in a separate bill, which uh, James accounts for his political awakening and that of several of his friends who, who just saw who was doing what and who really cares about the working people of Wisconsin. So thanks for the letter, James. Joanne writes us uh, and sends uh, us some information that goes very far back. Joanne is a new listener working her way through the backlog, so she won't hear this for a while. Yes. Hi, Joanne, you made it. Brings up uh, the Eastland disaster episode and sent us some information that there is a memorial to the Eastland victims at the Bohemian National Cemetery in Chicago, which I did not know. It's very new. It's very new. It opened in 2015, we looked up. For for the centennial anniversary. Yes, because many of the victims are buried there. Joanne actually has some uh, great-grandparents that are buried there as well. Mm-hmm. Not Eastland disaster victims, but... but- they- they could have been. They could have been. They were. They lived in Chicago around the same time. They just didn't work for the power company. Yeah. So thank you, Joanne. Noah sent us another email. And you know what that means? It's time to learn about Canada. Yeah. Now I'm going to to summarize this, and I'm trusting Noah because uh, many of his sources, uh, th- this specifically being about uh, Montreal history, are newspaper articles written in French. We don't speak French. <laughs> Neither one of us. We're trusting you. Uh, he took favorite labor union and put some big old scare quotes around it to tell the story of the Federation of Quebec Workers, the Confederation of National Trade Unions, and the Congress of Democratic Trade Unions, uh, some very powerful unions in Quebec and Montreal specifically. And they use that power to uh, get involved in things like corruption in local politics and organized crime. So over the the course of investigations and scandals, uh, since the Charbonneau Commission began holding hearings into this whole mess of a situation, we have the arrests of corporate executives and union heads, some of which uh, led to convictions, some just got out of Dodge to protect themselves from the same, and uh, Montreal had four mayors in a single year. 
That's a lot. It's a lot. If that wet your appetite for more information, I, I would uh, encourage you to look into that situation. And thanks, Noah, for sharing it. Porin sent us an email and talks about the European coal and steel community. The European coal and steel community founders had been uh, working uh, right after 1945 to try and prevent another war in Europe. And their answer for peace was... The economy. Mm -hmm. uh, if countries relied on each other to further their own economic growth, war would be unprofitable. They set to abolish any custom taxes to make European businesses more likely to trade with others. Laying the uh, the groundwork for things like the European Union. Mm -hmm. Corporate collusion. Sometimes it keeps people from shooting each other. How about that? So thank you, Purin. Thanks, Purin. Caleb writes in, uh, if you're wondering, yes, this is the same Caleb who we professed our love for. In we our love you, Caleb. Hey, one request, one confession. Okay, I take it back. I don't love you, Caleb. Bethany loves you, though. Now, Caleb <laughs> is from West Virginia, coal country. Mm -hmm. uh, we got copper and coal in, in this uh, episode and wanted to talk about the United Mine Workers of America. The initial organization of those mines led to the Blair Mountain Affair, the largest armed insurrection following the Civil War in the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Army and coal miners fought in the hills of Mingo and Logan counties. There were also things like the shootout at uh, Matuan and the Paint Creek, Cabin Creek events. So yeah, if you want to learn about how armored trains and machine guns shaped the lives of uh, mine workers in West Virginia, you should definitely check it out. Uh, he recommends the book The Battle of Blair Mountain by Richard Shogun. I'm sure you'd find a whole lot of parallels to what we just talked about. Probably. I'm taking this one as a, not just a response, but a show suggestion. I mean, th yeah. That sounds cool. We will <laughs> see it. Put that in the maybe one day hopper. Yeah. Thanks, Caleb. So uh, if you would like to send us an email to give us a show suggestion, a question, or just talk about whatever, where can those emails go, darling? Those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. That's fantastic. And if you'd like to uh, contribute to our, our bi-weekly prompt, what, what is it for next episode? So our prompt for next time is favorite puppet. I can't wait to hear some of them answers. Yep, I'm leaving it open there. You can go in any direction you want. And while you're getting in touch with us through email, don't forget you can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. Mm -hmm. At History Honeys. Mm -hmm. And you can also leave us a rating and review on iTunes. They help us so much. Uh, we're nearly at 50 five-star reviews. What? That would be a fantastic yet arbitrary number. Yes. <laughs> so close to it. So close. So Make us go there. Also, mm -hmm. you should tell a friend. Yeah. Tell people about our show, why you like it. Maybe they'll like it too. You guys mm -hmm. will have something to talk about then. Uh, word of mouth really helps uh, getting our show out there for other people. So tell your beggar at the grocery store. Tell your librarian. Tell your podiatrist. The kids at the local skateboard park. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sure they'd love to hear about this. Yeah. Just spread the word. Absolutely. Word of mouth is powerful, powerful stuff, and it's the only advertising we have. So thank you very much to everyone who uh, uh, listens to that plea. Speaking of word of mouth, though, we're going to uh -huh. use a little bit uh, because we started another show. What? 
very recently. We did, and it's very exciting. It's a good time. So we have started another podcast called Sex Archie. Now, Sex Archie is a weekly recap podcast of the CW show Riverdale based on the Archie comics. And we are in love. (laughs) It is an amazing show Mm -hmm. that everyone should be watching and talking about. So what we do is we watch the episode, we recap it, talking about all the crazy that went down. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, and if you want to hear that without a quack, yeah, listen to Sex Archie. It is raw and uncut. Yes, oh, the things that we say, mostly I say. We also uh, do a paged screen segment where we talk about the comics to the show, and we make predictions about what we think might happen next. And I have to say, I make some good predictions. Sure you do. Sure you do. I think I think they should come to me to be a future writer. Like, And you don't have to take our word for it. We have one more letter. Uh, listener Flavifibe all is part of the first wave of Sex Archie listeners. And she says, quote, I have never seen a CW show in my life until right now, 10 minutes into the first episode of Riverdale. This is all your fault. And I hope you're happy because you actually really should be because I'm having a great time. I knew I had to check it out once you two called it Tween Peaks. Yes. Flava Five loves this show, and she loves Sex Archie. If you like this show, you'll probably like Sex Archie. Yes. And you can find Sex Archie on both, uh, we have a SoundCloud. Mm-hmm. It's on iTunes now, uh, just recently. It's on Stitcher. It's on Stitcher. Um, we also have a Twitter going for it, at Sex Archie. You can find all them links, and you can chat with us, and heck yes, it's a fun time. Mm-hmm. It is not recommended to listen to with children. Or any of our parents who may or may not be listening. Yeah, don't, please, don't listen please to that Please don't one. listen to that. So check the show notes for all that stuff, no matter who you are. Except my mom. <laughs> don't do it, mom. And with that, I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your, your honey. honey.